Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Ben Clemmer. And I'm Caleb Meyer. And we're very excited to bring a special guest on today's episode, Carolyn Studer, joining us today. <laughs> we go way back. Like we do. 11, 12 years. Yeah. Uh, high school. And we have done many an acting on the stage together. We've been paired together in many, many shows. The first was A Christmas Carol, where you were Scrooge. Do it you was. remember? Yes, I do. <laughs> This is my first time hearing this, by the way. So go on. <laughs> yeah, because uh, we were the the young versions. Yes, I was Scrooge, and you were his Belle, his like love interest that he loses. We used to hide under the table from the director talking, and became fast friends. <laughs> <laughs> and we've oh done everything God. from Shakespeare to we've acted in films together. Yes, which is how I met Ben. We're now back to talking about what for me was junior year and the AV class at the University of St. Francis taught by Jane Martin as she gets referenced on another podcast episode. In that class, I was working with uh, Tyler Bloomfield. He and I were the two music tech guys, and we did all of the audio from on-set capture via a boom mic and recorder setup all the way to doing ADR and post-production and score and everything, and it was crazy. It was a blast, and yes, it was the first time uh, we got to work together with you two playing the leads on the movie, and you made that as good of an experience as that could possibly be as we were going through and putting that thing together. It was insane. And then from there, I mean, like, because after that, what was it? I then got to see, correct me if I'm wrong, The Tempest, I believe, because you both did a Shakespeare in the Park production or Shakespeare from the Heart, I believe, here in town. And Lucas yes. was directing that. Lucas, of yes. course, also another good friend who was on the podcast earlier on. It is good to be around the table and also doing something that we kind of talk about with some of our episodes in that we will have a concept that we kind of do a primer on. I think an example would be when we did our community update. At the beginning of the year, we talked about our generally role-playing games. And then we did an episode very specifically about the Star Wars fake core stuff. So you have actually already been referenced on the podcast, Carolyn, though it is good to now have you on. That's right. And then our most recent episode was Cinematic Icons and Meeting of the Five Families talking about gangster movies, and we're not going too far from topics discussed with today's episode focus being Peaky Blinders and Boardwalk Empire. So tell us a little bit how you first got into the genre of gangsters and mobsters. It was a bit of a sticky situation. I vaguely remember a very nice kindergarten teacher pulling me aside and asking me if everything was okay at home. The context being that we had one of those little forms that you fill out with lots of cute pictures and you just sort of write what your favorite movies are, what you do at home with your family. And I told the truth that many nights were spent watching movies with guns with my mom. And that was it. Just movies with guns. which, you know, rightfully so, worried some people. And then we all got brought into the office, and my mom was looking at me with, you know, the side eye of, like, please don't have me taken away in the crazy wagon. And then she explained that James Cagney was a regular friend of the household. We watched a lot of movies on Turner Classic Movie together. That came up in our last episode. I I saw Angels with Dirty Faces very early in life, and it made an impression. Yeah, it changes you. Mm -hmm. Gangsters are just so fun. Yeah, and even in so many different eras, because we definitely talked about how you kind of watch going up from the gangster films of the 30s and 40s into the film noir era, into the kind of iconic era of The Godfather, and you also have films like 
Bonnie and Clyde and Scarface and Once Upon a Time in America that kind of take the romantic elements out of the gangster genre. And even though it gets a bit of a rebirth in the 90s, thanks to the likes of Martin Scorsese and others, by the time we get to the shows we're discussing today, the it's an overused word with a lot of productions these days, but the grittiness element is at the forefront. And it's still very strong storytelling and two incredibly fun shows. And also thank you, both of you, for introducing me to Peaky Blinders, because every time I would geek out and talk about Boardwalk Empire, it was the first spotlight I did for this podcast. The response would often be, you need to watch Peaky Blinders. If you like Boardwalk Empire, you will love Peaky Blinders. Well, it's an easy lane change because they both take place in the exact same time period. Peaky Blinders starts a little bit earlier, but basically they're both set in the 1920s era. Mm-hmm. Boardwalk Empire in Atlantic City in America and Peaky Blinders in Birmingham in England. There's so many similarities between Prohibition going on. So like they're both bootlegging, they both run gambling operations and racketeering. It's pretty easy to just shift from one to the other. Yeah, and I'll say to your point about the romanticism, I think the aspect that I enjoy the most in both of those shows is that the main character brings that romanticism because Steve Buscemi and Killian Murphy. They bring the romanticism. I mean, they're so appealing. They've got such heart that it pulls you right in, even if it's a little grittiest at the start. The next thing we should mention is, first off, massive spoiler alert for both of these shows. Uh, We're going to go through them in detail. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about Warbuck Empire, that's in a largely spoiler-free way. I actually would encourage scrolling down wherever you get your podcasts and finding our second episode, uh, Planet of the Hyper-Realistic CGI Apes, because after that conversation, that was when I did my spotlight on Warbuck Empire, and I wanted to do a deep-dive look at Season 1, Episode 1, to talk about so many of the things that the pilot does well because the pilots of both of these shows are amazing mm-hmm. without kind of telling, hey, this character is going to be important later or, hey, this character dies within like X number of episodes. I didn't want to make it clear how important different characters were to the show, but we can absolutely dive into that now. The other thing we should point out is these are very adult shows. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of sex. There's drugs and substances. So just, you know, don't watch with kids. <laughs> Yes, indeed. And and so many of the elements that made the gangster movie genre perhaps unpleasant or took the romanticism out of it and kind of put the... One thing that was talked about with the Godfather films is that the rise and the fall happen simultaneously, and that's true, I think, of these shows as well. And you have violence and content and elements that are genuinely disturbing. Mm. And also, they 
Boardwalk Empire aired on HBO, so <laughs> it, it doesn't pull, have those restrictions. It pulls that no punches. Network television does, and Peaky Blinders airs originally on BBC. It's pretty graphic. Yeah, I mean that grittiness that we mm-hmm. were talking about mm-hmm. earlier. It very much comes into play. So, do we want to talk about kind of how each pilot sets up its world, and then just pull the threads we want to pull on as we go? Oh, why not? I mean, they're so juicy. <laughs> we mm. might as well dig in. Do you want to start with Boardwalk? Boardwalk did come first. Boardwalk starts, I like it. It starts, I literally just watched the episode before we got on the mics. It starts with like a bootlegging operation. They're shipping rum in from Canada on the boats just off the coast. So I like that it starts with, you know, the era ending, prohibition beginning. It doesn't necessarily start with the characters because the setting is such a big part of Boardwalk Empire. And for the first three seasons of the show, they had this elaborate Boardwalk set Gorgeous. that they used. The, the, the design is just absurd. The costumes and wardrobe of all the characters, the suits are just, the level of detail is unreal. Oh, and the juxtaposition between the beautiful Boardwalk and this soft tone of water and like sort of the romanticism like we were talking about and then the grittiness it's such an interesting way to set up a gangster type show i loved that part and that episode has so many good lines that set up steve buscemi's character nucky thompson so well uh from the never let the truth get in the way of a good story which i referenced when we were recently on the dales volt podcast uh, to talk about kingdom of heaven to the you can't be half a gangster anymore yes. mm-hmm. that Jimmy tells Nookie. And I'll give us our first bleep of the episode recalling, I believe it is the conversation with the fisherman who's going to be bringing in that alcohol shipment they're talking uh, by the docks. And I think towards one of the last things Nookie says in that conversation is, I already got what I wanted. What the f*** will we talk about as he leaves? <laughs> I forgot about that line. There's just so many elements that tell you everything you need to know about who he is. The treasurer of Atlantic City already building this operation as Prohibition goes into effect. I just, with his, you know, cop brother, <laughs> just, it's uh, the most Shea corrupt. Shea did such a good job in that show. So oh. good. I should point out the pilot especially has that sort of masterclass touch to it because Martin Scorsese directed the first episode of Boardwalk Empire. More connective tissue to our previous episode, absolutely. Yeah, and I've heard rumors that it was supposedly one of the most expensive pilots, but that was then, of course, overshadowed by Game of Thrones later. You can tell it's one big party. Well, yeah, because they have the funeral for John Barleycorn, and they have, this is for me, and this is going to be one connection to Peaky Blinders, because to me it's one of the biggest differences of the show, just speaking as the audio guy. The majority of the music and soundtrack that you have on Boardwalk Empire is period and maybe over half the time diegetic, whereas (laughs) Peaky Blinders is anachronistic needle drops and it works so well. That's probably the biggest difference between the two shows, that whole anachronistic feel of Peaky Blinders. Here's some Arctic Monkeys. Yes. I mean, Boardwalk Empire is basically like a time travel capsule back to the 1920s, like the costumes... The slain is what yeah. I picked up on rewatching the the first episode. Like they use those colloquialisms that they had of the time, where they're like, "I'm not a rube" and stuff like that. And I didn't reference this in the spotlight because, again, I was trying to make that spotlight as spoiler free and not wanting to give away who's important and who isn't. Chalky White's in the first episode. Yeah, he, for he's like half a second. Yeah, he's yes. waiting in the office. I think his line is just tell Nucky I got all day or something like that. But it's he's there, and we're just establishing and and building the world. You know, we did spend a lot of time talking about the gangsters and I think we can go back through the tropes and that could also serve as a good lens to talk about some of the characters in both shows 
But th- there's one parallel that I want to get both of your thoughts on because there's a similar character archetype that both shows have in terms of characters that are so gray and then by the end of things so dark <laughs> in terms of the, the route they go. And that is the cop slash government official and their fall. And we have Nelson Van Alden on one side of the coin, played wonderfully by Michael Shannon. And then we have Inspector Chester Campbell, played by Sam Neill for Peaky Blinders. Brilliantly and played. And they're both scumbags. Both, both brilliantly played. Well, there's a lot. I mean, I have three character parallels between the shows written down right here. So, yes, there's... And I think it's because it's so easy to make those characters in the gangster genre. They're almost like fantasy archetypes that you have to fit in. There's, like, an archer character. There's a dwarf character. In the gangster, there's the cop who becomes corrupted. There's, you know, the intelligent head boss, his leading lady who wants him to get away, get clean in the life. Well, because both of those characters' journeys start out pretty clearly framed at least against our protagonist of the show whether we're talking about Tommy Shelby or Nucky Thompson and then we start to see the character delve into their own vices and start to indulge in the world that is surrounding them as they're in Birmingham and Atlantic City respectfully and then past a certain point they break loose from the government or the body that they're serving and go off for personal reasons in radically different directions. Because Van Alden stays in Boardwalk Empire, I think, longer than you expect him to. And then Chester Campbell, by the time he finally is removed from the show, it's like, yeah, it was time. And you know what it kind of makes me think about is maybe these writers just knew how genius they were with the story they had, but... When you start these two shows, you are so in love with the leading characters and sort of the quote unquote bad guys that you almost thank God (laughs) that the good guys, the cops, end up being corrupted. They do these, I mean, Van Alden commits a heinous act. I won't say too much because I hate spoilers, but at a baptism, I'll just say. And it's so crazy. It changes your entire viewpoint of the character, but you're also for a moment like relieved that your bad guy is better than this bad guy because you've fallen in love with this main gangster. Well, and that's... Both shows are, like, centered around the fact that your protagonist is really the antagonist in the story. Like, they're the criminals, they're the ones killing everybody and doing all these illegal things, but the opposing forces are the guys, theoretically, we would root for in real life. But yeah, the gangsters are so charming, you can't help but love them. I almost feel like, and this is another parallel we could make between a couple of characters, in terms of like where they start at the beginning of each show and how we kind of see them rise, Tommy Shelby is kind of similar in some ways to Jimmy Darmody. If Jimmy Darmody was the main character of Boardwalk Empire and didn't make as many mistakes. That's the main difference. At the beginning of Boardwalk Empire, Nookie starts in charge and in power. Like, he's the top dog. He runs everything in Atlantic City. Even though he is only the county treasurer, he's not the mayor. He's in charge of everything behind the shadows and is the puppet master. Tommy is sort of coming up. Like, at the beginning, the Peaky Blinders are just, everyone calls them a backstreet razor gang because they're called the Peaky Blinders because they keep razor blades in the brim of their caps that they'll cut people's eyes out with. Then he, you know 
takes over the racing track operations and moves down to London and kicks out the Italians and the Jews. And by where we're at currently in the series, he's a member of parliament and has all these political connections and works with Winston Churchill and is like fighting against the fascists. So, yes, it's one's a rise story, which will, I think, get to the fall at the end of Peaky Blinders. Boardwalk Empire is kind of about a guy trying to stay in control and then eventually it all falls apart. Yeah, as you see that change in era, because kind of as we, and it precedes it just a little bit, because we had the era of gangster films going to film noir, you have these various, and actually, no, this is the time to bring up the tropes, because one of the ones we talked about in the Five Families episode was they focus on immigrants from the lower class who battle against cops and rival gangs. The gang is very much a boys club, and female characters are sidelined and often not treated well which isn't necessarily true in Peaky Blinders that is very true and we will get to Polly the archetype smasher in a bit I suspect then we have loyalty to a brotherhood whether that's family or their people and then you do wind up covering a fair amount of timeline and it goes way beyond just one heist or one like year or period you're you're spending multiple years getting to know these characters and seeing that rise and fall yeah well decades pass for both shows mm-hmm. because Peaky Blinders starts right at the end of World War One, and Stephen Knight the creator has always said he wants it to end when World War Two starts and Boardwalk Empire at the beginning of the series there's this baby this like little toddler and then by the end of the series he's a young man so that's how much time goes by and season five also gives us flashbacks to Nucky's early days and we see Nucky Thompson his brother Jillian Darmody the Commodore all as younger people and a lot of dynamics start to make sense if they didn't already there's a lot of ways in which those flashbacks are able to capture the characters and i still whether we're taking from like mark pickering's performance as a young nucky a young steve buscemi he does a phenomenal job but i still definitely see parallels between and we'll definitely get more into nucky and tommy I still see some between Jimmy and Tommy just because they'd be age contemporaries both returning from World War One, and they are not okay. They also have the same haircut. <laughs> <laughs> that they do. they do. That they do. They do. No, there's a lot of there's a lot of hunger and ambition, I think. I mean that's always called the lost generation, the guys who went and fought in World War One. And they kind of embody the antithesis of that. Like they saw so much death and loss in the world, they're like I want everything I can out of life now. They also ground us in a way that gangsters, when you think of one, don't. They are crazy. They are unpredictable. But these characters are pragmatic and you feel safe with them in a way, which feels bad to say. But you feel safe because they make choices that make their contemporaries seem off the cuff, crazy, unpredictable, wild. And you think, oh, these guys will never get caught. Well, and for both characters, before the war, it's shown that they were not as violent, not as broken, and just the exposure to the horrors of war. They're like, yeah, I'll kill people, and it doesn't bother me anymore because I've done it hundreds of times. And violence becomes like an easy tool and option for them. This is also a good time to reference our our last episode once again because we talked about the uh, theory that Once Upon a Time in America is just an opium flashback. And the flashbacks where we see young Jimmy Darmody in, a, in season two, it actually is. And we go back and forth after he's found out that his wife has been killed by Manny Horvitz. He goes off and is just 
out of it for an episode, but during that episode, we see him pre the First World War. Well, and Tommy also uses opium to avoid his World War One flashbacks because he was a clay kicker. He dug the tunnels under the trenches to get to the enemy ones and has like horror nightmare dreams about it. So, yeah, the opium use is another thing they have in common. I think it's fair to say these shows use female characters better than probably any gangster piece of media ever has. Yeah, I would say Jillian and Aunt Pole. Yeah, you could argue, and I guess we'll bring up the elephant in the room now, you could argue Sopranos does that as well, between Dr. Melfi and Carmilla, Tony's wife, um, are huge influences on that show. But these shows wouldn't exist if Sopranos hadn't already happened like 10 years, whatever, prior. Sopranos had to walk so they could run. Yes. And it kind of goes back to what we talked about in the beginning, that stripping away of the veneer, the romanticism. Peaky Blinders and Boardwalk Empire have it, but they also have that component that the Sopranos did, where it's like, these are not good men. They do very bad things. But I think to your point, when we get introduced to Tony, it's similar to Nucky and um, Thomas Shelby, because they're almost seen as businessmen. They seem... Like everyday dads or fathers or, you know, uncles to these other people. They seem like family men. And then when we find out they do these heinous acts, it almost seems out of character for a gangster. You forget for a moment that these are horrible people. Well, and it's important. They see themselves as businessmen. Like yeah. they're always making deals. They always they build themselves up as pillars of the community. Like in Peaky Blinders, everyone tips their caps to Tommy Shelby. Uh, in Boardwalk Empire, Nookie is, you know a sitting public official and goes to temperance league meetings and is like, alcohol is evil and awful. I'm going to buy 2000 crates of whiskey <laughs> tonight. Yeah. Well, although the parallels, because I mean, we do meet his father later and he's a horrible drunk, both in the old version and the younger version shown in the flashbacks. So Nucky's not being entirely dishonest there. He's just making what he shares of the truth work for him. So speaking of the family, that'll bring me to my, probably favorite character comparison between two shows, which also might be my two favorite characters from each show, is the brothers they have. Arthur Shelby in Peaky Blinders and Eli Thompson in Boardwalk Empire because they're both crazy, hyper-violent. They're basically... In Peaky Blinders, he always talks about... He uses his brother Arthur as, like, a mad dog to, like, scare people. He's like, okay, if you mess with us... I'm going to send this crazy guy after you who will wreak havoc, bring the dogs of war upon you. And it's the same thing that Nookie does with Eli. He's his enforcer, basically. Yeah, because he starts out as the sheriff. And then even though events take place that cause him to eventually lose that role, Eli's relationship to Nookie is so interesting because throughout the different seasons, it's collaborators with some tension and then... Nucky's starting to get betrayed by others in his circle and then how much can he really trust Eli and that undercurrent continues until Eli's getting pressured by another source another corrupt government official in season four it just the the way the brother characters are used in both shows so so very good this is making me think of in the first episode of Peaky Blinders when this big bad inspector comes to town he pulls Arthur Shelby out of a movie theater thinking he's the big boss and it's like, you couldn't be more wrong. You've just got the lackey mad dog, like Caleb said. Well, because Arthur is the oldest brother mm-hmm. for the Shelby family. I Eli is younger charge. than Nookie, right? Mm-hmm. But they both have a extreme case of sibling envy. Oh, yeah. Because 
you know, their brother is the one who's in charge of everything. They make all the decisions and they're kind of left out in the cold. So that's a very big part of both of their characters, which is part of what eventually drives Eli to betray Nookie. As we go through and, and talk about different parallels, part of why we also wanted to do this episode is because we want we are all immense fans of the performances given by Helen McCrory and Michael K. Williams playing Polly Gray and Chalky White. Respectfully, kind of odd to pair those. I, I've I have had that like in my notes for a while, and then just saying the two colors aloud is, is kind of funny to me at this point. But anyway, and they I, add so much color to the show. Mm-hmm. Like they are such rich and deep characters. Because Polly, okay, well, the first time we see Polly, she's pointing a gun at somebody, and then I think later on in that first episode, she has a line to Tommy when they're in a church together, and she's just like, "God and Aunt Polly are listening." Yes, I am on board. I want to see where this character goes. And I remember also early on, like, just looking up different pieces of trivia, and it's like, oh, she was originally considered for Bellatrix Lestrange in Harry Potter, but had a baby, so she couldn't be in Order of the Phoenix, and then later plays Narcissa Malfoy. And initially, I was like, really? It's really hard to see anyone other than Helena Bonham Carter playing that part. After watching Peaky Blinders, no, I can see it. She would have been an amazing Bellatrix Lestrange. She's got so much going on underneath the surface of her performance. I mean, she's just phenomenal. Polly is the matriarch of the Shelby family, and she's kind of the foil to Tommy. Like, she reins him in when he's going, you know, his plans are too crazy. Chalky is obviously not family to Nookie and the Thompson brothers, but he still kind of plays that foil. He'll come in and be like, all right, Nookie, you're being stupid. Like, we're business partners. I need you to do good business, so don't do this stupid thing. They're like the conscience of the two main characters, like that little voice in the back of their head that's like, all right, are you sure you want to do this? Mm-hmm. But yeah. no one, and that's the other thing about the, just the writing on these shows, no one is flat. Like, Polly no. and Chalky both get so much to do. Polly Especially with their do- kids. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. Oh, my word. I mean, just Polly's dynamic uh, with her son once he is introduced, and then... Chalky and his family and the fact that both shows do something you can't do with a gangster movie the gangster movie is usually coming up through the ranks rise in power and indulgence fall in the third act as everything spins out of control but the shows have the opportunity to escalate a conflict have the out of control craziness and violence in the last in the case of Peaky Blinders probably final two episodes of the season in the case of Boardwalk probably last three or four uh, just with longer seasons. And then by the time we get to the next season, the walls are back up. The gangster main characters have successfully been able to fool society again, fool themselves. The status quo has probably changed a little bit. Not everyone's probably still around, as some characters likely died in the previous season or series. But we're back to a new status quo. There is peace. And then what's going to be the rock that gets thrown into the pool that upsets everything for the arc to come and well, you kind of see that reset and it builds so much tension because mm-hmm. the conflicts keep getting bigger each season like it's like spinning a plate on a stick and they keep adding more plates every season you're like okay they just beat the feds in the first season and it's like okay well now we're fighting these big gangster outfits from chicago and new york how are they going to handle that and then it's like oh they're fighting this actual psychopath how are they going to handle that and it, it's Mm. Yeah, I love it. Well, because you know, at some point they can't. 
At some point, it's going to be too much. Especially when they factor in them fighting themselves, whatever their demons may be, or their family, the power, inner power struggle, and then you know they're really done for. And going back to Chalky, one item that I wanted to mention after the passing of Michael Kenneth Williams, and especially given how much NPR I listen to, most every tribute or rebroadcast of interviews on Fresh Air and different things like that mentioned The Wire either before Bulwark Empire, because I think, it, I mean, timeline-wise, it was first. Mm-hmm. Or they would mention The Wire and wouldn't mention Bulwark Empire, and I'm thinking to myself, I need to see that performance, because yes. I haven't yet, and I want to. And I kind of had the same feelings when I sent the gangster top five list to my brother, and I just said, hey, out of curiosity, how would you rank these things? And then I'm seeing, you put Donnie Brasco that high, huh? I need to see that. Because it's like, if we're talking about Michael K. Williams' performance in The Wire more than we're talking about Chalky White. And his performance as Chalky White is amazing. It just tells you, again, just the impact he he had in his career. And I will say, we were uh, having a chat about these universes possibly connecting and what could bring them together. I was rewatching Sopranos, you know, avid gangster lover that I am. And Michael is in Sopranos. He fosters one of the characters in the projects uh, while he's hiding from his neighborhood. Oh, gosh. He plays a single father hiding him from the uh, rival gang. I almost fell out of my seat. He's so young and totally a different character from Chalky White. I mean, it feels like we're moving at a million miles an hour and we're just three people sitting here having a conversation because (laughs) there's so many layers we want to unpack with these shows. Because Michael K. Williams as Chalky White has so many amazing moments. And ones that stick out... Both of these are going to set up and connect to different characters who might be our next stopping points, and then we can talk about their Peaky Blinders equivalents. I'll do the first one first. In the first season of the show, you get the bookcase monologue when Chalky is going to torture the Klansman for information and talks about his, his ancestors and lays out the bag of carpentry tools, and after he's asked, what are you going to do, just has the line of, I ain't building no bookcase... And the next time we see him, he has a finger from the hand of that clansman he was torturing. And I think in his line is something like, you pass a point when a man is beyond telling you a lie. And then I think the follow-up is like, we passed that point 10 minutes ago. Hence the cloth with the finger wrapped in it. And in season three, you have him being Nucky's last line of defense, stopping Jip Rossetti from getting him when Eddie has been shot, Nucky has to flee. Rossetti and all the support he has from Joe Mazzaria are gunning for him, and they would get him if not for Chalky and his men standing outside the house, literally in front of the door where Nucky's on the other side. And just that protector moment from Chip Rossetti, which, for those who have not seen Bobby Cannavale in a ton of things, holy hell. Okay, but you... Everyone's seen him in a lot of things because he shows up everywhere. (laughs) If you think you haven't seen him, you have. He's always there as some, you know... As some character. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I blame that point of the storytelling when um, Chalky White goes up against this big, bad, crazy guy that's come into town to save Nookie as my main source of anger in the later season where we're given this gleam of hope that Chalky White is going to enter as sort of a main character and have this great season of owning a club, doing all these great things. But instead... 
He goes for the honey pot and spends the entire season doing what? We don't know. It doesn't matter. He's nowhere around. We're going to talk about probably the show's three of their greatest antagonists mm. because Ain't Building No Bookcase might not even be the best season one monologue because you also have if I would make a stranger choke to death for my own amusement in the second episode from Arnold Rothstein while he's playing pool and Michael Stuhlbarg's performance as Arnold Rothstein, the Jewish gangster from New York, is unbelievable. Then you have Gipperzetti in season three and you have Dr. Narcisse in season four. Played Chills. By Wright. Oh my word. And I saw an interview with him where he talked about, I think it was Terry Winter, the writer and showrunner, and just looking at some of the dialogue and some of the scripts, he he just said something is like, is Terry secretly a black man in disguise? Because this dialogue is amazing. The colloquialisms that they took the time to include make all the difference. You feel like you are genuinely in this time period. Well, they're both, like, at their core, they're historical fiction. I mean, they're gangster shows. Mm-hmm. But also, like, there's a bunch of real-life characters that come in. All of the gangsters in Boardwalk Empire that you meet from, like, New York and Chicago were real people. John Torrio, Arnold Rothstein famously rigged the World Series, mm-hmm. supposedly, allegedly. <laughs> uh, but Winston Churchill shows up in Peaky Blinders and Oswald Mosley, who was the villain in season five. Real life, you know, led the British fascist movement is actually in the show so you brought up one of my favorite points is that in these historical fiction type setup shows we never know what characters are going to be just hinted at a nice little throwaway or who's going to be i mean al capone in boardwalk empire played by stephen graham oh oh i mean when we meet him we don't know if we're going to ever see him again or if it's just a nice little hint like tongue-in-cheek look who jimmy stood by on this hit And then he becomes this great. And same with Winston Churchill. I never thought Thomas Shelby would be working with him when he was mentioned by the inspector as being his boss. It's so cool. Because you mentioned Chunky could lead us to a few character parallels. I would argue the character parallels for Arnold Rothstein is Alfie Solomons. 100%. Brilliantly played by Tom Hardy. A pro tip, use subtitles, because you will not understand what he says otherwise. Jip Rossetti is clearly Luca Changretta yep, from two season two. four. And then, Narcisse. I don't know if there is a parallel for Dr. Narcisse. Well, there's not really a parallel for Chalky, because this is one of the, the one of the biggest differences between the shows being British and American, is you have the plight of black characters. Which is hugely, Im- that's an aspect Chalky brings to the show, which is extremely important. Because, yeah, I mean, it's in the 1920s America, racism... I mean, it's still a big issue, but was clearly a big issue back then as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, like oh. you said, he tortures a Klansman. With a couple of them, you have a lot of similarities in terms of Luca Cengretta and Gip Rossetti, the Italian mobster who comes in later, who has a vendetta. And for Cengretta, it makes perfect sense because the Peaky Blinders have killed members of his family. But for Gip Rossetti, it just starts out as an alcohol deal that he's not going to get, and then it just gets blown way out of proportion and he takes he everything gunning for Nucky's operation he takes everything personally yeah. like the slightest things he'll take his insults oh find an insult in a bouquet of roses you yeah. didn't sit me where I wanted to be seated okay I hate you now one of my favorite scenes and I can't explain why because there's so many great scenes but is when he takes over this small town and he's got all these townsfolk in the, in Poor the Tabor church Heights. Yeah. Tabor Heights and they're like what about the Bible study and he goes oh we're not going to be having a Bible study no more honey my favorite Gipperzetti line is when he first gets to Tabor Heights and he's flirting with that waitress 
and he's convincing her to come to his room and he's like, oh, you're making soup? Well, you stir. I'll provide the heat. (laughs) (laughs) What about when he almost knocks someone's skull in for the paper being about the day before? These events Mm -hmm. happened yesterday. He said, yes, sir. That's how the newspaper works. Oh, I love God. that character. He is a brilliantly unhinged character. And, and one of those things, where, and, it's, and it says something, where Boardwalk Empire has spent two seasons building up characters like Arnold Rothstein, or Nucky himself is just characters who are car- terrifying you don't want to mess with, and Jip Rossetti blows right by him. His, Bobby Cannavale's performance in that show is maybe one of the best. Well, it's that uh, position of disruptor. Which mm-hmm. is what Luca Changretta does in Peaky Blinders, because he comes in in the fourth season. I mean, they've won. The Blinders have won every fight they've come up against so far, so you feel like they're kind of untouchable. All of them own these giant estate houses now. They're ridiculously wealthy. And, I mean, this is a spoiler episode, but in the second episode of that season, he kills one of the Shelby brothers. Mm-hmm. He just guns down John, John. And, like, from then on, you're like, okay. This is happening. Like, I, I have no idea where this is going to go. And you mentioned, like, if there's... Yeah, there's so many scenes where Jip Rossetti is just terrifying and madness. You told me about the bullet scene with Chan Greta before I even watched the show. Yes, that's my favorite monologue from that character. Um, it's right when he shows up. Well, it's when you really first get to see him in character, because John was killed by his men. And he walks into Tommy's office, and Tommy, like, immediately goes for his gun. But Luca already had someone in there who took out all the bullets, and he's got them in his pocket. He just places them on the table and starts listing the names of his family members. And when he gets to John, he sets it down, and he's like, John Shelby, spent. He just flicks the bullet towards Tommy, and you're like, okay, this man is not screwing around, and he he wants this to last. He's going to make this painful. In terms of their function within the show, each lasting a season each being absolutely terrifying. Changretta and Rossetti are very similar. While the functional dynamics of Rothstein and Solomon's also are kind of similar in terms of the uneasy alliance meets downright antagonists, depending on who has betrayed whom lately, in terms of aesthetics, they could not be more different. I was just going to say that. When you have Rothstein incredibly prim and proper and talking about cake, I think I remember Lucas quoting... Nucky Thompson talking about Rothstein and just saying he eats like a f- child. And then the polar opposite being Alfie Solomon. You pull that trigger for an honorable reason. I can't do Tom Hardy. Who and can? You, no one can understand Tom. But that's as you said. Yes, you have to watch it with subtitles. You can't understand Tom Hardy. And just his, the lower class bakery bookkeeper desk in his own shop. It just There's so many elements that work so well. And again, kind of contrast the shows. Well, and they both fit that sort of, one of the archetypes you mentioned, you know, the immigrant class. They're both Jewish businessmen, but they kind of go about it in different ways. Rothstein, he tries to be very conservative in the middle of the road. He wants to fit in. He wants to be the upper class gentleman that everyone looks up to and admires. Alfie Solomons is like in your face about his Judaism. I mean, he has the great monologue in season two when he captures Arthur and he's talking about Passover and how they would, like, sacrifice a goat. And he brings one in, and he's like, oh, well, the goat's not the sacrifice you are. This is another parallel that is interesting to me. And this is where we're kind of talking about 
two shows that are right now in very different places. Boardwalk ended, I think, like six years ago. Peaky Blinders is still going, and we're waiting on the sixth season, and it is coming in 2022. Much to look forward to there. I had issues with season five, just for a number of reasons, because it's the only season. Like I'd almost say this. If you haven't watched Peaky Blinders and you're listening to this, and you have not watched the fifth season, I would wait until season six comes out, because I suspect it's going to tie up and pull on many of the unresolved plot threads from season five. Whereas every season of Peaky Blinders before it and every season of Boardwalk, I mean, they do continue some storylines, but they all are very much their own chapters. They don't have a ton, if any, cliffhangers for the most part. At the end of season four, when we get to season five of Boardwalk Empire, we've done a time jump. Instead of it being in the late 20s, we're now in the early 30s. And with that comes the historically real-life death of Arnold Rothstein. So, And I on my last rewatch... I had to very much appreciate the shot where he's leading Margaret and I think the kids that were into an elevator when they're getting a new apartment at the end of season four. And it's the last time we see Arnold Ross team because we get, I think one line that references him when in the thirties and I think down in Havana, maybe when Nucky sees Meyer Lansky again, pulling from real life gangsters and they have the conversation of, or when, when did I last see you? And, and Lansky says, Aos funeral. Where is Alfie Solomon's <laughs> has a death in season four. Which and is it's fantastic. It's yeah. so good. It's perfect. And it didn't and, stick. And they bring him back in season five, and it's dumb, and it doesn't make any sense. And I hate it. I hate everything about it. I mean, it's fun to see Tom Hardy again, but ugh. They negate everything they earned with what they did masterfully with his death by bringing him back. Well, because they follow that same arc. Like, Rothstein, you know, starts as an antagonist, then they become kind of embittered allies and friends. And the same thing happens with Tommy and Alfie Solomons. You know, they start in season two, they're very much fighting against each other. And then after Tommy wins, they're like regrettable business partners, basically. But their final confrontation in season four, where you're like, okay, why did Solomons betray him again? And then you figure out, oh, it's because he has cancer. He's dying anyway. He wants to go out in a blaze of glory. So he got, you know, arguably his best friend, which is Tommy, to like give him the death he wanted it's uh, it's beautiful it's so great and then they tarnish it in season five this is one thing that i think gangster shows kind of run into because boardwalk struggles with this to a degree and i feel like peaky blinders is and maybe will continue to run into it you start to run out of characters as you have everyone in your story exposed to that level of violence and mayhem you're going to have a lot of collateral damage and a lot of characters that we've grown to know and love are going to die and by the end of especially season four of Boardwalk, we've closed a lot of key character arcs. And again, some characters we haven't even talked about yet. And Peaky Blinders is in a similar position, especially given I had a lot of frustrating moments in watching the finale. Maybe this, I can't believe this is the window that I'm going to try to bring in Richard Harrow, but I think this will work. You have their attempt to assassinate. Oswald Mosley. Yes. Goes Horribly awry. Yes. Basically, and they had a mole. Someone tipped them off that they were going to try and do this assassination because they knew the exact plan. And yeah, mm-hmm. like pretty much everyone involved for the most part gets offed. Indeed. And that includes, or the unfortunate thing that can happen when timing and writing within a show and real life tragedy intersect, where you have one character got killed off and another character is actually gone. Because Peaky Blinders kills off. I'm gonna need you to say, it, Caleb. Go ahead. Abramagold. Thank you. Uh, played by Aiden Gillen, yes. who is amazing. And 
leaves alive Polly Gray, but Helen McCrory is no longer with us. Yes, unfortunately passed. And you have, like, I, I just, I think back to things like the Star Wars sequels, killing off Luke, Carrie Fisher has passed away in real life, or The Dark Knight, killing off Two-Face, Heath Ledger has passed away in real life. It's, it's a challenge to write your way out of that and do justice to the character. But that said, though, Peaky Blinders has still historically done a lot of things really well, and I look forward to seeing what they do in season six. The other thread we can pull on that, again, ties into both shows is you have World War I veterans throughout both shows. It's most of the male cast in Peaky Blinders. Yes, because and, they're British. And, mm-hmm. I mean, they fought World War One for a lot longer than America did, so most of them were involved. Yeah, and I cannot remember the name of the character. Is it Barney, who's in the asylum in I, season five? I think it's Barney. Yeah. And it's has, Wednesday! <laughs> it's <laughs> Wednesday! As soon as the place starts to shake and they're going to break him out. is so good. So good. Yeah. And but so you, he obviously is not an overly developed character and is dealing with the mental trauma of the war. The flip side, or a thread, yes? I got to say this now because I won't, but, I mean, it's sort of the same thing. Mm-hmm. The character you're getting to also relates to Arthur in a lot of ways, but is it season five? I love whatever point where Arthur, you know, he was kind of going crazy and very violent, and then he got a little bit better because his wife made him get better, but then he's like, all right, you know what? I'm back into it, and he's just walking around, and he's like, I was a capable f-ing soldier. I'm a capable f-ing soldier! <laughs> That undercurrent is there with so many of the characters of the right age who fought in the war. I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I did watch Boardwalk Empire first, and so it's kind of my first love in this equation. Even considering the entire cast of Peaky Blinders, I feel like the best veteran character in both shows is Richard Harrow. Absolutely. Oh, my Uh, God. Partially because it's literally written on his face. Mm -hmm. Richard Harrow was disfigured by mustard gas, right? Or was it a shell explosion? I honestly don't remember. It's been long enough. He is literally missing half his face and wears a like fake mask that's mm-hmm. like an approximation of the other half of his face. The it's haunting. makeup on that is so good. And yes, it is haunting because it's that uncanny valley where you're like, okay, Jack Houston should get all the awards because Richard Harrow is played to perfection. Yeah, he delivers that level of performance only using half his instrument. The depth and the emotion in his eye, he only got gets one, is enough to just... The little, like, vocal hiccup he does whenever he talks, because, I mean, he's, like, the character would be missing, like, parts of his vocal box, and, like, that sort of glottal stop he has in a lot of his dialogue. I, like, it's amazing that he does that so consistently. And then he is a strange outlier, because... And this is another area where I would give Boardwalk Empire a lot of credit. A character with some kind of facial deformity, over 90% of the time, is going to be a villain. And Richard Harrow is maybe the most redeemable character in the show for the most part. Yes, 100%. This is something that I know Boardwalk does very well. And it has more time to develop. So I, I feel like it's maybe a strength more so of Boardwalk than it is of Peaky Blinders. Is the fact that they can build up, here's multiple sides and multiple families. Again, no one is flat. You're seeing the different elements in play, who's working with whom, what deals are being struck, what betrayals are likely, and where is there clashing and carnage. And Richard Harrow does wind up on the side against Nucky for much of the second season and then is in this weird space in season three, although it leads up to Harrow's rampage, which 
I would argue is maybe the climax of the show. It almost feels like everything following the season three finale is almost falling action in yeah. Boardwalk Empire. But his performance through the whole thing and just and you two already hit on on one of my favorite parts as well, the vocal tech and just the fact that there's there are psychological layers to that character that are so so well explored. But he's so quiet. Mm-hmm. He's very soft-spoken and mild-mannered. I mean, he sort of shrinks into himself. He's a gosh darn nanny for s- several for, episodes. For, for Tommy Darmody, yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, and getting him to a safe haven after Jimmy has died and getting him to a family by the fourth season. But he has that undercurrent of like, you know this is a dangerous guy. Just some of the, you get to see a little bit in some of the work he does for Jimmy. And then when it finally gets unleashed in the rampage at the end of season three, when he just, when he busts Tommy out of the brothel slash fortress that Jillian has set up, it is, oh, it's such a good sequence. It's kind of telegraphed a little bit in season three, just to what extent we see Richard's not done. Like Jimmy is gone, but one of the first times we see Richard other than at Jillian's club, yeah, which was once the Commodore's home. Like Again, it's just all of the interesting and disturbing layers that carry on as the story progresses. There's a lot of them. When we see Richard at the beginning of the third season, he kills Manny Horvitz, who has also been very well established and is this intimidating as hell Jewish gangster butcher from Philadelphia that Jimmy should not have gotten into dealings with because eventually he's in a position of owing him money and Horvitz, when he's unable to track down Jimmy, just kills his wife. And... Angela Darmody arguably treated Richard better than anyone in the entire show, so Richard gets his revenge at the start of the third season. And it goes to show you the morality meter of Richard Harrow, because Mm. when Nookie kills Jimmy at the end of season two, Richard isn't upset about it. He's like, you know, Jimmy made his choices. Arguably, he wanted to die. And he's like, I don't hold any grudge against you. Like, we're soldiers. We fight in a war. Sometimes we die. But when someone who's not involved gets hurt, that's when Richard goes off. Yeah. And I could argue, too, he loved Angela. Yeah. So that's mm. probably part of it. Well, and the fact that, like, she's an artist and, like, did a portrait of him and, and just in that. And then that's contrasted wonderfully with there's a moment. I think it's it, it has to be season four because actually, no, it might not be when he starts. And I'm now not going to remember the name of the family, but he has an, a love interest that gets introduced whose father is also a veteran. Mm-hmm. And they wind up helping taking care of Tommy and they're out on the boardwalk one day and they get their picture taken and Harrow just, I'm not going to do it on mic because my voice will go off, but he turns in profile. So you only see the intact side of his face versus Angela getting to paint the whole person. That's just, a very interesting parallel. I love both shows so much and boardwalk it might be one of my favorites, if not my favorite. I mean, it's sort of a macabre segue, but the killing of... One wife sort of leads into the killing of another wife <laughs> in Peaky Blinders, which is a very big plot point. Yes, it is. Uh, Grace, who is Tommy's main love interest for the first three seasons, eventually they get married. And unfortunately, she does get killed in an assassination attempt on him gone wrong. Is a very interesting character. She starts off as an antagonist. She is a spy, basically sent by the police to get information on their criminal goings on. So she's working as a barmaid in the bar that the gang owns. But she starts to get connected to Tommy, and they find out, like, they're attracted to each other, and then they realize, like, okay, there's deeper things 
to both of them. Like Tommy has, you know, this broken heart. One of my favorite lines from season one is she sings in the bar. She sings songs to the veterans and Tommy hates that. He's outlawed all singing since he got back from the war. And so when she's like, all right, I'll sing you a song, but it'll break your heart. And he's like, it's already broken. So good. And just the, (laughs) given my first watch of Peaky Blinders is very recent. (laughs) There were conversations in in my house that just pass a certain point where it's just like, she's going to end up sleeping with Tommy, not just talking about grace, but like other female characters that get introduced. And I'm sitting there just go, (laughs) and I'm, then I'm sitting there thinking, well, she has passed the screen time threshold past a certain point. We can make that assumption. Mm. Oh my word. And who wouldn't? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I would sleep with Killian Murphy. (laughs) It's it's Killian Murphy number one, Jason Momoa number two. And didn't we already have an Andrew Garfield conversation in the first season? Andrew Garfield is, <laughs> is probably number three. Or Adam Driver. All right. Adam Driver. Okay, all right. We got it. You and John Oliver. Get in line. They're involved in season one, but it, it eventually goes wrong because he figures out she was spying on him, on him the whole time and she leaves and goes away. She comes back in season two. Turns out she's married to someone now. Eventually they get back together. That's not going to stop them. Their romance is too strong. Um... And her husband dies off screen between season two and three. And then she and Tommy get married after that, which is sort of how Nookie ends up marrying Margaret. Nookie actively has her husband killed. But yes, after one marriage, they find each other. I was going to suggest going from Grace to Margaret is a perfect segue. Although, if we also want to go with characters who have beautiful Irish accents who are tragically killed and should have gotten more screen time, we could also talk about Owen Slater. No, Margaret. Let's talk about Margaret. And well, both of the characters, both Grace and Margaret, are sort of that archetype where they're like they love the main character because of the good part, the romantic parts of him. You know, his intelligence, his kindness, his wit, and they want them to get out of that gangster life. The thing with Grace and Tommy is, Tommy's always like, you know, in however many years we'll have the family legitimate, like. We're finally going to do it. And then Margaret, she, I mean, she knows what Nookie does, but she never really allows herself to, like, accept it until it becomes, like, too much. And then their marriage starts to fall apart. And, yeah, you have Owen come in later, and that's a whole thing. Mm-hmm. No, and Kelly McDonald does an amazing job. Oh, she's job so from start good. It's also important, too, both Nookie and Tommy are, I think, attracted to these women because they're, like, a conventional life. You know, Nookie and Tommy have access to you know tons of women in season four i think it is tommy says to i think his secretary he's like love i can get a whenever i want and nookie's the same way he starts out his relationship in the beginning of the series starts out he has this relationship with a girl named lucy who's kind of like a flapper dancer Mm -hmm. and like loose she's loose uh she's not you know can't really match him intellectually and then he meets margaret who is this housewife essentially you know she's just raising her kids and sort of has that pure like white picket fence life Mm -hmm. that both characters kind of want and are striving for but ultimately because of their choices they can't have and post the collapse of the relationship whether we're talking about the death of grace in piggy blinders or the separation i can't remember if they actually do get divorced or whatever but once the marriage between margaret and nucky falls apart as well you have the fact that that main character is never really going to have a good relationship ever again. And Boardwalk Empire highlights this in a wonderful way. Again, just like kind of the history and the fact that what we as the audience have gotten to see as an observer that none of the characters that wind up with our main character are going to see. 
when Eddie Cantor, who has been the singer and the main performer throughout Boardwalk Empire, and it does feel like he was pulled out of a freaking time machine, when he asks Billy Kent, the season three love interest, you ever heard the name Lucy Danzinger? She has no idea. And Eddie's follow-up is just, next one won't know who you were either. (laughs) And just, yeah, showing to what extent Nucky's just going to move on and just like he's not going, you're nothing to him ultimately. And Tommy really has yet to find a stable relationship. The simple fact is after these two great interests of theirs, really, even for us as audience members, I feel we don't care. We've had the great love story of each uh, show. And I think that starts because we see equals to these big bads, even though we don't think of them as bad all the time. But you know, Grace starts out as an undercover spy, for goodness sake. She is his equal, and she has her... And not only is she affiliated through the law of being a spy, she has her own personal vendetta against these people because of the death of her father. And the same with Margaret. It's not as apparent, but she does have a stroke of sort of vindictive wanting to climb the ladder. She brings pies and everything to get on Nuki's side and you know, she plays sort of the, what you were talking about with the white picket fence. She plays that trope well, but we also get to see she's calculated. She knows kind of what man he is and what he can bring her and her children, which is fun to see. We like to see someone that they're equal. Margaret's less involved in the criminal life, but one of my favorite subplots for her character, I think, is it season two? I don't remember what season it's in, when she's trying to get like a women's health clinic set up at the hospital. And she's like okay, these guys aren't respecting me because it's the 1920s and I'm a woman who wants to know about my own body. And she's like, all right, well, guess who my husband is? Uh, I'm going to use all that power that I've gained now to get the things that I want in life because it's time for me. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I want to cover on Margaret's arc. Because eventually, they kind of... Well, on some level, because I feel like she kind of winds up being a character that just ends up getting put wherever it will serve the story because eventually she's also our window into Wall Street and the crash. Yes. Margaret's also the smartest character because she lives. She's like the one character who survives and gets out good in the end of Boardwalk Empire. I think really after season three and the death of Owen, you know, she's like actually seen, you know, the horrors of this life. And she's like, okay, I'm not having this anymore. Like, I have kids and we need to get out of here. Yeah, that moment. You could also make an argument that's the climax of Boardwalk Empire because it's heading right into the final confrontation between it's just going to be nothing but violence between Jip and Nucky from here and who's going to kill the other one first. Well, it's it's another parallel. I think season three, you know, is the greatest height. You know, mm-hmm. they beat the scariest villain they can, and mm-hmm. it's just downhill from there. Like, they're the kings of the roost. You can, when once you get to the top, the only way to go is down. And it's the same in season four with Peaky Blinders. Like, at the end of season four, he's like a member of parliament now, and everything's going great. But now, I mean... Things can only go down from here. You know what I like, too, about Boardwalk Empire is as far as Nuki would go, it never felt like he got all the way to the top. So it feels like, OK, we still have some mileage to go. No. <laughs> or he built up enough of a stockpile and was trying to get out like he had done as well as he was going to do in Atlantic City. And and again, I come back to the end of season three because for the whole rest of the show, after everything that goes down with Chip Rossetti in season three, Nucky is trying to get out of it. To some extent. Literally. Goes and, to Cuba. <laughs> yeah. And the focus is also that because this because the focus of season four shifts our antagonists to Knox, the government official, going after Eli and Dr. Narcisse going after Chalky White. 
and there's less direct attacks on Nucky because we've already seen a direct attack on Nucky in season three. Well, and that's funny. That's another parallel. Like, there's so much political stuff going on after they finally beat the scariest gangster. I mean, who's the biggest crooks of all? It's the politicians. It's time to take them on. And you also have. I, I want to talk about. I want to talk about Owen Slater because the way they play the scene where <laughs> we're going to start with his death and then work our way backwards. He attempts to assassinate Joe the Boss Mazaria in New York because he's supporting Giprizzetti, and the theory is if they can successfully assassinate Joe the Boss, then there's no support behind Rizzetti, and they can take back the territory that's theirs. We don't even see that assassination attempt. Owen Slater dies off screen, and his body is sent back to Nucky at his suite in the Ritz-Carlton in the early a.m. hours in a box. And, I mean, his valet, who has been with us since the very beginning, Eddie, is going through after he is waking him up and saying, there has been a delivery and is cracking open the top of the box and the lid comes up. We see Nucky's expression as he sees Owen's body and they're not able to close it in time before Margaret sees the body and her reaction as she just breaks down and begins crying and Nucky realizes, oh, there was more between you two there than I realized. I mean, all hell breaks loose after that. So that's not immediately addressed. But that's the collapse of their relationship as well. And just the fact that we see Owen kind of rise through the ranks when he's first introduced. An associate from Ireland, the Irish, are going to be doing deals with Nucky. I think one of the few times we see Europe in Boardwalk Empire is when they go over to Ireland and are making deals over there. And then one of the few times we see America with the Blinders. Yes, with the with the IRA. And one of the few times we see America in Peaky Blinders, it's Detroit after the crash. <laughs> Thanks, Peaky Blinders. You know what's a, another fun parallel here? When they bring in the old country, things don't go great with the boss's wife. I'm thinking of Furio with Carmela because when they bring him over from Italy, they have a relationship. And then the same thing happened with Margaret. Charlie Cox as Owen Slater is just amazing. And I... I actually got to see him at Comic-Con a number of years back. I'm trying to remember if that was a trip we made together. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and just being... <laughs> and him telling the story about Boardwalk Empire, like the first scene he's in, after he's they've done a take, he just sees producers running around, and then someone comes back to him and says, okay, uh, we're going to need to do that again. No one understood a word <laughs> said. Because the Irish accent for Owen Slater is just so thick. There's nothing... It's just, But it's so, ugh, it's so well done. He gains Nucky's trust because... He wasn't in his orbit to begin with because as people are starting to betray Nucky, he needs someone new. And so Owen winds up at his side for most of season two, most of season three. He and Richard Harrow have a confrontation when there's going to be a delivery from Jimmy to one of Nucky's people. And whoever it is that's receiving it doesn't realize Richard Harrow doesn't work for Nucky. And so there's a brief exchange where you're thinking, are two of the coolest characters in the show going to potentially kill each other? Scene ends without violence. And he becomes more and more involved in the operation and then more and more involved with Margaret until eventually she aborts the child that they would have potentially had together. And then his death after the unsuccessful hit. I mean, just for a character who he winds up kind of defining some of the gangster archetypes in terms of it's still a boys club, immigrant coming from another country, rising up through the ranks and then ending an unspeakable tragedy. But yeah, Charlie Cox does such a good job of Daredevil fame, of course. I'm sitting in the room with two people who have much more acting experience than I do by a significant margin. What are some of the performances in both shows that just stick out to you and 
what are some of the ticks or things you notice? Because again, this, uh, you're more initiated than I am. Yes, this uh, sticks out to me because of a different show that he's in. Paul Sparks, who plays Mickey Doyle in Boardwalk Empire, is like the most annoying character ever written. He has this frustrating laugh that's high-pitched, and he's just he makes the most off-color jokes, and he's like a little fly you want to swat. But in House of Cards, he plays a writer who eventually ends up involved with Robin Wright's character and the vast difference between the characters. You know, one that's such a little twit that's annoying and then this... Thomas Yates. Thomas Yates, who is a very intelligent and, like, very well-spoken and charismatic character who kind of has this, like, dark sex appeal to him. Like, the range there blows my mind every time I think about it. And if I'm remembering right again, behind-the-scenes stuff on Boardwalk, he auditioned... And then gets cast and then had to remember, which voice did I use? Because <laughs> Mickey, because, really? yeah, Mickey comes out of left field. I agree with you. He is vocally, he is the most annoying character in the show. And then when he finally dies in season five, like, it's right, really sad. Yeah. But then also you're thinking, how in the world did you make it this <laughs> far? Or the fact that he's, bra- what was it? He was bragging about some connection to Jimmy and Richard almost straight up kills him for it. <laughs> Can you tell him to put the gun away? <laughs> Please? (laughs) I had forgotten about him, and he reminds me of Arthur a bit in Peaky, because they both have these... Paul Anderson. Yeah, they have similar statures, and they just... You almost hate them, but Arthur has a a bit more, uh, what would I say, redeemable qualities that you enjoy watching. I would say I'm a sucker for, you know, I know it's taboo, but the leads in both of these shows, I mean, I'm also a huge fan of the underdog, and seeing... Steve Buscemi finally get to go there in every episode of this show after being the second man or the B character in every Adam Sandler goofy film. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. He was never the leading man. And he was always always the weird guy. Like he's Mm -hmm. the weird guy in Con Air. Or Fargo. Um, He's literally identified as the odd looking fella. Yes. And I mean, admittedly, with his looks, you could argue Hollywood is a tough nut to crack, but he is so captivating and it's. It's just refreshing to see that someone can really bring their craft to the table. Well, and both shows are 100% carried by their leading man. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, the screen time both of them get is by far and away the most out of any character on the show. And you get years to develop a character. You can continue to learn and grow with them and explore and go in so many different directions. I saw an interview with Killian Murphy where he talked about that. And just the... For Steve Buscemi, it's always the facial expressions that stick out to me with Nookie. Like, when he's angry, when he's, like, shocked and surprised by something. I just watched the pilot episode this morning, and there's a part where Lucky Luciano badmouths him. He, like, Nookie says, well, you know, maybe don't interrupt when the adults are talking. He, like, gets up and is all angry, like, about to go at him. And and Nookie just has these wide eyes where he's like, you're going to get up and, like, come at me, little boy? Okay. It's, It's so good. Luciano, I think, is also, like, a wonderful performance for a character that's around in the background for the whole show, and then in the fifth season, he finally becomes, like, the main big bad. We've hardly talked about him and Lansky. Yeah, and the fact that, well, and this is, again, a wonderful parallel going back to that spotlight. I talked about the dinner table, because you have Big Jim Colosimo, who doesn't make it to the end of the first episode. You have Nucky, you have Rothstein, you have Torrio, and you have Luciano, and only Torrio and Luciano survive. And right outside is Jimmy and Al Capone. Recalling the dynamics at play, I think, again, it's end of season three is just so strong. 
because I always remember Luciano's reaction when he gets busted and then they realize that Arnold Rothstein has bought the heroin operation out from under him. You set me up. It's just like the fact that he goes on a tirade and Lansky's trying to hold it back. He's like, Charlie, you need to cool it or we're both dead. <laughs> They're a fun duo. Oh, it's so good. They're self-policed so well that it's you never know who's going to. Well, those background characters in both of the shows are great because in Peaky Blinders, there's Johnny Dogs, mm-hmm. who is like a gypsy soldier, I guess. Yeah. And kind of the Tommy. gopher for, yeah, for yeah. Tommy. Yeah, he's the gopher. Go for this, go for that. And Curly. <laughs> yes. And then Curly and Uncle Charlie, who own the scrapyard, are fantastic background characters. I did want to say, speaking of background characters or B characters, you made me think of Billy when you were talking about the great storytelling and colloquialisms and all this stuff of it being really in the time of Boardwalk Empire. I think Billy Kent, that character, was done so well. It is such a fun, easygoing character that you probably wouldn't look at as being a great acting performance, but to embody the 20s so well... She moves like water. She looks like a flapper girl, how you would imagine it in your imagination. I think it's wonderful. We have not talked about, and I'm kicking myself, Ada, who is Tommy's sister. So the Shelby family is five kids, actually. The four brothers, Tommy, Arthur, John, who run the game and are involved in it, and then Finn, who starts out as a child in the first season and then as a young man in the later ones and eventually gets involved in the game. And then Ada, who's the only girl... And in the first season, she gets involved with Freddie Florn, who is the communist agitator that they can't stand because his politics are dumb. And he used to be friends with Tommy, but, you know, they had differences after they got back from the war. And then ironically, Ada is also maybe the most redeemable character in the show. Yes. And she, out of all of the siblings, is the only one that is as smart as Tommy and can, like, keep up with him. When Tommy interacts with Polly, he's interacting with a comparable strategist. When it's Arthur, it's just the power and forcefulness of the organization. Like, Tommy is intimidating, and you know what he represents. Arthur is intimidating, and it's this close to killing you, depending on the interaction. But with Ada, they're intellectual equals. In fact, Ada might actually be smarter than Tommy. And it works out. Yeah, their dynamic is so wonderful. Sophie Rundle does such a good job in that part. Yeah. She opens the world up to all these other political issues that we know are going around that I'm sure the BBC said we can't not include this. And it just brings a sort of contemporary feel to this old school gang that Tommy brings us into. So it's a very cool dichotomy. The whole archetype of the modern woman, especially in the 1920s and 30s, like Ada fits that to a T because, you know, she marries Freddie, but he dies from sickness off screen. Between seasons. Between seasons. Yeah. But then, yeah, she moves down to London, has her own apartment and flat, does, like, political work. And with Margaret playing the stock market at the end of Peaky Blinders, like, the whole era of, okay, you know, women can have their own lives and they can have their own businesses and be independent is also, like, a big, like, sub-theme throughout these shows. And we should mention Jesse Eden, who appears in later seasons of Peaky Blinders, who represents workers' rights and unions and organizing that is something to, when we consider, again, a, a woman taking on that role in the time and, like Ada, bucking a lot of trends. It's the end of World War One. We're heading into the Second World War. The men are going to go off and fight again, and the women are going to be doing these jobs. It makes sense that Jesse Eden is a character of focus and arguably, as you said, Caleb, should have more focus. Well, even Lizzie, who 
Oh, ends yeah. Lizzie Stark is amazing. Tommy's wife in the later seasons they end up getting married, who starts off, she's a prostitute, and then he hires her on as a secretary, and after Grace dies, they start a relationship and come to an understanding with each other. There's a great, great episode in Peaky Blinders where the men have gone off partying, and the women are like, well, why the hell do they get to have all the fun? And we have to stay here and do all the books and do all the work and clean everything. And they basically go on strike. They're like, we're not doing anything. We're not running the office. Like, yeah, Polly's, we're going to go out and have fun for ourselves. Polly's even in sunglasses. Like, the, yeah. I know the shot you're thinking of. Yeah. It's like slow-mo. You have Polly. You have Lizzie Stark. You have the women of Shelby Company Limited. And you know what? Going back to one of my favorite parts in, in the introduction to the show of the pilot of Peaky Blinders, some of the men are kind of like, the men are talking. What do you women want or whatever? And po- Polly is like, who do you think ran the show while you boys were gone? And so it's a it's a great introduction into realizing, okay, there's going to be some players here that are equal to the boys. And with that, we're back around to the beginning. I mean, we've talked about main characters, parallels between the shows, why we three absolutely love these shows, and they hold up so well on rewatch. They're so fun to talk about. They're so well done. I mean, we're, we're in an era of such quality television, and Peaky Blinders season six coming right around the corner. Well, ultimately, I think the gangster genre is not, it's not about the plot because you know what the plot's always going to be. It's that rise to power and then fall from it. The gangster genre is driven by the character drama, and these shows have some of the best characters ever written and acted on screen. And the aesthetics. I mean, I, I still get chills just thinking about when you first are introduced to the world of Peaky Blinders with the sound and the visuals. I mean, there's sparks flying, there's hammers. It's just so Guitar immersive. riffs in the background. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. They really brought it into the 21st century. And and on the converse side of that with Boardwalk, you're transported into this different world in the past that's so comforting in a weird way. Carolyn, thank you so much for your time yes. and joining us today. Thank you for having us. Oh, this was a blast. Thanks for having me. Anytime I, we can talk about gangsters. One, two, three. Oh, come, let's join Rosie Bella. Come, let's join Rosie Bella. Come, let's join, come, let's join the saucy Rosie Bella. Bring away! Come, let's join Rosie Bella. Bring away! Come, let's join Rosie Bella. Bring away! Come, let's join, come, let's join the saucy Rosie Bella. One Monday morning in the month of May. Oh, Nancy is my true love. 
handle this full bully crew love. Yeah! Up aboard the Rosie Bella, give away! What you just heard was a recording from the Ragtag Bunch's album, Live at the Tiger Room. That song was called Rosie Bella. Incidentally, one of the members of the Ragtag Bunch joins us today for the Storytelling Breakdown spotlight portion of this episode. Jeremy Stroop, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Cool. So, Jeremy, you're bringing with you a movie called The Secret of Kells, right? Yep. Tell, tell me a little bit about this, this movie, because I, I just watched it earlier today for... Like the second time, I was in college when I first watched it. We were in, it was an art history class, and it was a super hard class. And then one day, we didn't have to work super hard, and we got to watch a movie. And so it was pretty special. We were talking about probably medieval art. The movie was very cool and influential. So it's about uh, the Book of Kells and the making of the Book of Kells in an abbey in ninth century Ireland. The movie focuses on text illumination. Essentially, yeah. right? That's like that's what the Book of Kells is. is mm-hmm. a It's a massive illuminated text. Exactly. So which it's I a guess Book of the Gospels, and it's yeah. illuminated by monks. They're not sure exactly where it, where they did it at. Maybe at this cartoon abbey. The story's great, but the main reason to watch is the animation style because it's it's just completely different from other things you're going to see, and it reminds me of the start of Watership Down, where the animation style is completely different. It's very, very beautiful and stylized, and you just kind of wish the whole movie was done that way. This is like they did the whole movie that way. So it's it's really focused on pattern. The perspective is different. It's very flat. They use a lot of false perspective, and then then it's it really embellishes on these beautiful, rich textile-like patterns as they interweave and make trees and forests and walls and people are even flat. But the way they the tricks they use to move them through the space are really really what make it interesting to watch. And the the focus of the like the plot of the movie is is this young boy Brendan mm-hmm. uh, who eventually ends up apprenticed to a master illuminator, brother Aiden. Brother Aiden, uh, who is actually probably my favorite character just because he's this very lively Willie Nelson looking guy. Willie Nelson looking <laughs> old man, but he's he's very spry and very entertaining. A lot of people in the movie are very dour, serious monks and then he comes in with a lot of creative joy yeah brother aiden's great and he so he apprentices under brother aiden and eventually takes over the task from him to Mm -hmm. um, to finish the book there's a a crystal uh, almost the the way that the movie kind of makes it seem it's almost like a magnifying glass yeah like a crystal that like when you look through it you can see these like fractal kaleidoscopic patterns in this way that is sort of the way the 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 spirals look in the designs it's like the secret sauce in making it so the book of kells is an actual text right yes Um, i've seen it i've seen it you have yeah in dublin in dublin i was very very fortunate we it's at the trinity college in dublin and we we went it was the gospel of matthew was open that day and they turned like one page every day it's in this 
climate controlled thing and you can get right up pretty close up to it but like no no pictures or anything and it, it's very cool right because it's from 900 yeah, yeah it's so old it's, it's super old and then that from being from 900 that gives us like the main villain in the in the movie are mm-hmm. is viking raids brother aiden's abby was is destroyed at the very very beginning of the movie uh, iona iona yeah. that's right and uh then you get to kells and they're building a wall to mm-hmm. to keep all these viking raids out and they think they think that's gonna stop it and they're like no what we need to do is finish the book not finish the wall and it's this this contrast between it's a big contrast and point of contention between the two adults in the main character's mm-hmm. life his uncle is the abbot of the abbey at kells uh who is voiced by brendan gleason he's the one who's very much no we have to build this wall we have to keep all of our people safe the book can wait kind of a deal yeah and then brother aiden who arrives pretty early mm-hmm. on in the movie he's the one who's like no we need the book because the book is going to share the message the one thing we haven't really touched on from the movie though is the uh the aishling aishling yeah the forest spirit she comes in the she's like a a young girl or sometimes a wolf and sometimes uh she shows up as mist a couple of times um but she's on the cover of of the dvd yeah and it's that that very interesting i remember when i first watched it i do remember we got it from the library and i remember seeing i remember only seeing the cover and knowing that i've watched the movie (laughs) But it's this it's just this pair of bright green eyes in a bush, coming through this like beautifully patterned. Yeah, all the green and, and yeah, and the, like it's the just green the, man uh, archetype. Yeah, coming through. Every, every single leaf is ridiculously detailed. Yeah, and I amazing. thought, oh, that's a cool cover. But you get into the you get into the movie, and that's the way the movie is for all of it. And, and I think that the, the cool thing about the style is it's they're they're really trying to evoke the, these these manuscripts and the style in those because most animation and western visual narrative is based on realism and perspective being accurate and perfect and then they take it from another culture or an older culture where before that was the norm everything is very flat very stylized very beautiful and by perspective you mean essentially i'm the viewer and the way i'm looking at this painting or piece of animation or comic is going to be akin to real life versus like say something uh, like the Bordeaux tapestry. It's well, it's that medieval style where mm-hmm. everything's kind of almost on one flat plane, flat plane and everything is the same size, I guess. It's not yeah. the, right, the right word to use it. But when you watch the secret of Kells, it's that same kind of feeling is what you're talking about. And they, they use false perspective. Yeah, absolutely. What is a false perspective? Well, um, well, there's a scene where he's running up the stairs, and like it looks, it looks like a staircase, but it's, it's completely flat, and it's so hard to describe. But you have to see the way they solve the the puzzle of how to show a man running up the stairs without showing the depth of the perspective. With it's just a flat patterned staircase. The way they handle these difficulties, these challenges, is really what makes it interesting. It's kind of new and creative by using an old and a, a separate culture's style of looking at the world, I guess, or per, their perspective. You watched this in an art history class. Did it, it stood out to you. Obviously, it was a nice reprieve yeah. from what can be a very difficult subject. Um, but did it did it influence the way you, because you're a successful artist in your own right now, did it influence the way you kind of approach 
what you do because your style is very very distinct and i know it's jeremy's work if i'm if i'm looking at it uh up against 100 other works because i know well a i know you that helps but b i know the way that your style is and it's very different from a lot of what we see being done today and i'm wondering do you think maybe this movie and and how interestingly animated it is had any effect on that or 100 percent blatantly stolen blatantly stolen (laughs) yeah i i would never i wouldn't lie about it especially the scene where he's fighting crom crook in the dark with a piece of chalk is very uh, symbolic to me because there was a period of like probably two years, maybe more, where I was drawing on black paper with a white pen for years doing this, just just grinding it out and like chipping away something out of that like dark void. And then after a while, I, I was doing like works on lighter colored paper and like filling them in like like manuscripts. I think what it took was I found that I could take from various cultures and periods of time and just jump outside of kind of what's going on right now and and borrow pretty liberally from about every genre you could possibly take from but definitely a big huge influence like i've i did a piece that's a complete a rip off of the cover and um <laughs> it's a great I think cover. It's my instagram it's profile a great picture cover. or it was for a while and that black and white phase that you're talking about you can see that today if you want to you can go into forteza coffee shop <laughs> yeah and their their black divider wall has your work on it yeah. in white which is black very wall, very cool paint. for for those of you who are in fort wayne and want to check out a little bit of what jeremy does that's one way to do it there was one on the the brass rail for a couple years till they painted over it harder to find the the black and white ones I, I know from being a music major you have to study all of the eras at least a little bit before you kind of settle into a style that you feel more most comfortable in and kind of in art you have to study all of them and then you kind of determine what your style is going to be yeah and that's a lot of what that movie did is it definitely it stepped outside of the bounds of its own time and what people would stereotypically judge to be this is how you do animation in 2009 and said i'm we're going to do it differently yeah it really stuck in my brain and shaped shaped me tremendously so watch it well, cool. Hey, thanks for joining us. Um, <laughs> you bet. I'm glad that you brought this to our attention. I was glad to, to have an excuse to rewatch it. I actually ended up turning it on uh, with Samwise and Luke, although Luke was asleep. But Samwise was very awake, and he really liked it. Yeah, it's good for kids. Yeah, it's great for kids. So, Jeremy, if we want to see more of your work or uh, know about events that you're doing as an artist, where do we go? I most commonly update my Instagram page, which is Jeremy Stroop three and it's jeremy stroop three on most handles but um, my website's jeremy stroop.com and you can you can find me on there you can get a hold of me if you want or i'm working at jk o'donnell's if you want to just come say hi we're going to go out on our own music though in your own time we would strongly recommend pulling up red right hand from nick cave and the bad seeds and of course straight up and down from the brian jonestown massacre our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Steven Stahovsky joins us as a writer, producer, and editor. And starting in 2022 with our third season, he and another good friend, Larissa Whitaker, will be joining our team as hosts. Our podcast is hosted wherever you get your podcasts by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Thank you for having us, John. Our social media coordinator is Ella Abbott. Thank you for having us. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been the season finale of Storytelling Breakdown.
WSP, Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout.